Welcome to Brave. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Ao, a VC founder and father. Join us for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.jeremyao.com. Hey, Elise, good to have you on the show. Hi, thanks for having me, Jeremy. I'm so excited to have you on the show because you're not only someone who's very excellent in understanding what startups need and being a bridge with fundraisers, slash fundraising, slash VCs in your various roles as a formal connector between those two worlds. But you're also with a big heart that has been doing a lot of, you could say, CSR or philanthropy or volunteerism and bringing that to the tech world, especially in the early stage startups, which is very rare and very new from my perspective. So I'm really excited to introduce you and your story to the world. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. So Elise, for those who don't know you yet, how would you introduce yourself professionally? I am currently the founder of Asia Startup Network, which own the initiative Markang for Hope and Mentor for Hope, which Jeremy mentioned earlier, is really to bring our tech community together and also encouraging the spirit of giving back to the community. I also have a day job, so that is more like, you know, pro bono, part-time. My day job is investor relations, so I'm leading that at uh, Long Hash Ventures, which is Global Blockchain Fund and Accelerator. I am actually on sabbatical for three months. I mean, some people asked me, was it to organize the festival, the Makapok Festival? Um, yes, maybe, but I actually just needed time for myself and with my daughter. My daughter is two-year-old now. Yeah. Amazing. I got to ask, how did the startup bug first bite you? Basically, I was just thinking about the question earlier. I feel like I have actually always been enterprising since I'm young. The reason is that enterprising means that you know, being resourceful, finding solutions, being opportunistic, right? So uh, the reason is that my family was not well-to-do and I really have to make do with like, limited resources and uh, capital. So I think... It's a natural fit, you know, in terms of me being in the startup ecosystem and also just, just working in startup and even working as, you know, an operator in a startup, right? But it really, I, I guess my understanding of entrepreneurship started when I went for the NUS Overseas College Program when I was in uh, the year two of university. So um, that was when, you know, I really worked in uh, what you will define as a startup in the US and then also attending entrepreneurial courses at University of Pennsylvania. So that really helped me to um, better understand what it means to start a company and then what it means to run one. Yeah, let's talk about that NOC because it's become a mafia. <laughs> we always <laughs> like to use the phrase, right? And I think there's a new article recently by Tech in Asia about mm, how right. the NOC mafia. So, so let's talk about what's so special about NOC. Isn't that just a, another outplacement program to stick some fresh undergrad into some startup somewhere in the world just to get some exposure? So what is it? Yeah, I mean, this question comes up in mind when I saw the Tech in Asia article as well. What makes this group of 3,000 alumni special, right? Maybe the interviewers, they saw something in us, something resourceful, enterprising, entrepreneurial in us. And then, you know, when we go over to the different, uh, we call valleys, just being able to work in startups, you know, live and breathe that startup life, you know, and also being on our own, right? Having to be forced to be independent and then trying to survive with the limited stipend we have. 
and then also being educated on the entrepreneurship modules. I think really, you know, change our mindset and then show us what it's like to be an entrepreneur. I think really just being immersed in that environment help us to demystify a lot what people think about what entrepreneur is. And then, you know, it just become like natural. It become part of you because uh, we literally spend a year over there. So a year is like 365 days. <laughs> yeah, so that helps to kind of transform us into someone more entrepreneurial. And then secondly, definitely the network, whole community, how we you know, support each other in our entrepreneurial growth. And I think it helps as well, you know, to have role models. So for me, I would say that one of my role models was Yi Pingo. I uh, worked for a short time in her startup, Audios Asia. And we were really like just maybe smaller than a 10-man team. But what I really love is being able to solve the problem, think about new revenue streams, and then be able to execute on uh, those ideas that we have like almost right away and then immediately earn money for the company. Yeah, so that was like, a really mind-blowing experience. Yeah, so true. How does the NOC Mafia, you know, article was talking about how this group stays in touch with each other and helps each other over time. And I think that's pretty special because there are lots of people who graduate from the National University of Singapore or any kind of like university program, but not every network helps each other along the way and stays in touch. So how do you see the NOC group uh, and Mafia network uh, help each other and stay in touch over time? I would say, firstly, we have an email list. So there's someone with NUS Enterprise, will give NUS Enterprise, who diligently add all of us you know, to the mail list. So that helps in terms of disseminating information, sharing about events, jobs, and, and updates. And then secondly, the startup ecosystem is growing, but it's still pretty small in Singapore. Right? The, the numbers, uh, we, you know, it shows we have 3,800, around 3,800 startups in Singapore. So given that it's a relatively small network, it's, it's just easier for all of us to found each other or stay in touch. Yeah, and there's so many, like, before COVID-19, there were so many conferences, so many events that we would be able to attend and then just continue to uh, stay in touch. So that helps. And then thirdly, I think most of us are in uh, tech startups and then in some way or another, it helps to work with each other. Like, for example, shop, it makes sense for like, Shopback to work with some of these B2C companies that have uh, grown on the NOC mafia and and just through working together, we, we stay together, right? Actually, I want to say something about the mafia word. Because maybe because I'm blockchain, right? Uh, I feel like having an open, open ecosystem is so important that we support each other, not because we are from the same background or the same network. Yeah, because ultimately what we want to do is to um, create better jobs. You know, we want to create great companies that solve problems for painful, uh, pain, uh, solve problems which are painful, right? I mean, as much as I am privileged to be part of this um, NOC Mafia, I encourage you know, all of us from, from this group to, to support others, other entrepreneurs, because it's only when we band together and we really put our head towards the common mission you know, of encouraging entrepreneurship, being able to grow startup companies together, that we'll be able to realize the ultimate outcome, which is creating meaningful jobs, solving problems, creating great solutions for all. 
there's an interesting dynamic, right? Which is the tension between closed networks that have that tight support, peer support, yeah. but also the desire to be open and give access to everybody, right? What happened to all of the poor NTU <laughs> or SMU students, for those who are listening from overseas, like these are different universities that are not part of the NOC mafia, or they may be from different countries as well, right? So that's a big challenge. Do you feel like it's a tension or do you feel like there's space for both types of networks? Yeah, I think definitely there are ways to collaborate together. Even if you look at Singapore alone, Singapore is so small, like 6 million people. And I can see that different universities are, are becoming open. For example, uh, I would say SMU being, being really open in terms of, despite all the back, uh, different background of the of entrepreneurs, they, they will support them. And I think what helps as well is uh, there are, during, I mean, since started since last year, there are quite a few programs where it's just open to to different from, people from different background uh, and then being organized by this um, institution of higher learning. So um, I think gradually, you know, uh, really people will open up uh, and, and work with each other because that's the only way to grow more quickly, right? To share resources and not create overlaps and recreating the wheel. Yeah, so how can we partner with each other to be able to capitalize on the resources, the network, the capital that's already out there? Yeah, and that's something that you not only think about, but you've actually, as they say, put money where your mouth is in the sense that you've actually worked a lot in opening up access to folks because you did that as an advisor to NUS Angel Ventures, which is working there. You've mentored social enterprises. You've been the head of funding at Entrepreneur First, connecting basically VCs with new founders who are very much often first-time founders and vice versa. So what do you think is the dynamic there, right? Because aren't VCs supposed to do all the legwork in finding the founders? And aren't founders supposed to do all the legwork in finding VCs themselves, right? So why are you being... They used to say poliao. It's a phrase. How do you explain poliao? It's like, why are you just doing... The, like Not appendix, you're like... You got nothing to do, is it? Why are you being a middleman or advisor in the middle? Why are you helping VCs find founders? Why are you helping founders talk to VCs? That's a very interesting question. In the perfect world, the VC will find the right startups and the startups will find the right VCs. But then what we have is an imperfect world. And the truth is that if you have a great network, you know, you, you do find your VC more easily. And that applies to other parts of life, right? And I think for me, it's really thinking about how do I provide a platform to, how do I create platforms that enable the matchmaking uh, to happen more easily. And sometimes I also think about, you know, uh, am I reinventing the wheel? Uh, are there other platforms that are already there? So, so that's how I started working with uh, NUS Angel Ventures and, and I'm really open to working with um, other organizations as well because if um, it's already out there, then then why you know duplicate uh, efforts and all that? It's, it's more meaningful to work together. Yeah, and I think there is so much attached to. You just mentioned about dynamics, right? So I think there's a lot of emotions attached to you know being able to prove that you have uh, made certain achievements, right? So to like to, let's say for accelerators, you are looking at how can you do sharp out of your startups uh, who have done well and all that. And then if you are an association, you're trying to do that as well. So who is the mother of success you know, for certain startups that made it? So for me, I think that 
we, we can't help it in a way, we can't help it that people will become like close network just so they can really be able to articulate that, that achievements that they, they will be able to realize. But then um, I also strongly urge about thinking about like the overall, the big picture, the overall outcome, like what do we really want? Like what we really want is to, to grow that the ecosystem over in, in Singapore and in Asia, right? So that we may be able to even become the, the Silicon Valley of Asia, the hub for um, startups for Singapore. So it's when we kind of alleviate ourselves to think of like the, the overall goal that may change the dynamics and also we might ask to work together. Yeah, that's amazing. I think it's a huge goal and a very meaningful one to go for that. Since you've worked with so many startups and you've worked with so many VCs, what's something that you wish every startup just knew from day one? Like this one lesson that you wish you didn't have to repeat over and over again that you just wish that you just like, I don't know, was this imprinted? What lessons would you want them to know up front? Sure. Um, thanks for asking this question. So I've been thinking about it a lot. And I think being an, an entrepreneur first has um, inspired me to, to think this way. So meaning that for startup founders, the journey to start a great company is really a difficult one. So I strongly urge that you find something which you can do. And then secondly, that you love to do. And then thirdly, that the world needs your skills, your solution. So to summarize this, you can actually refer to the Ikigai um, concept, the Japanese concept. I think that is really what keeps me going all the time because investor relations, connecting people is something that I can do because I've been doing that for the past few years. And then secondly, it is something that I love to do because I just love to be uh, helping people, you know, seeing that they realize their goals and, and being able to connect to people who, who then have great working relationships together or end up investing to each other, you know. And then thirdly is just supporting the startups, creating, uh, helping them to create the companies that will solve the problem you know, of the world. It's something that the world needs. So I really encourage founders to create a business that resonates with you, that you can do, that you love to do, because then that will see you through the dark times. They will see you through like, the, the obstacles that you face. And that will help you to make the, the right decision all the time, because it's really difficult to make this decision on the fly. So that's something that I would want to repeat to all founders that I meet. That's so true, right? Which is, it's not just about the product market fit, which is what every founder is trying to go for on a logical slash business side. But it's also about whether they fit with the market and the problem, the founder market fit. Yeah. Whether they actually love what they're solving before actually going to build it. Yeah. Wow, that's so true. And I didn't expect that answer. But <laughs> when you say that way, I think there's something, yeah, I often wish was there for a lot of folks, right? Because being a founder is really not easy probability adjusted, you're probably not going to get more economic returns than working at a normal company. So you got to love what you're doing and trying to tackle. What advice do you have for founders who have ended up building a company <laughs> that is successful or doing some interesting signals, they're all fundraising, but they're, at some level, they may not really love what they're solving. I see a lot, right? There's a lot of university students, they're like, okay, I'm going to tackle food and beverage because I know that's a problem I want to solve. And after a while they do it, they're like, whoa, that MB is actually a bit different than what I thought, but as a market signal. So how do, what advice do you have for that? Yeah, and I think interestingly, I was just speaking with Sam, who founded Endowers yesterday. So the thing is, our company that we built, you know, involved over time as well, and expectation uh, may become misaligned. Both of us, what we're talking about is also finding the fit for yourself, you know, in terms of the role that you play within the company. Because it depends on who you are as a person. It depends on what you love to do. It depends on whether the role that you play makes sense 
when communicating to investors, to customers. To answer your question, I think more, it's more of like, you know, the company has grown, grown and, you know, kind of things have changed along the way. So what next, right, for this founder? I would say, you know, that play a different role in the company. I think quite commonly people become chairman, take on a chairman position or a director position rather than the operational role when uh, the company can mature to a certain stage. So that, that could be one solution. But I don't think stop you from you know, really selling off your shares to, to someone else, you know, whom you think can really continue the mission and continue to build this company and continue to deliver this, the promise to the customers. Yeah, so there's just many ways of uh, solving this problem. Yeah, but I think, firstly, it's so important to make sure that you love yourself, you love what you're doing, because when that happens, you know, everything flows. So only you know the answer, yeah. That's really good advice and I'm glad you shared that. What advice would you give for VCs <laughs> that you wish every VC knew? <laughs> I don't know whether I'm like able to say something <laughs> smart <laughs> about, about this. Yeah, because now I think about like, the VCs that I work with, they are like guys who've been able to raise like 200 million and 400 million. Like who am I to, to say uh, what they should do? Thanks to the people whom I, I meet across the past year, it's really about you know, changing the mindset to, to think about people before profits and just running a sustainable organization. Even myself, I sometimes I think about how do I become effective at my work? Do I, how do I make choices? Do I optimize based on you know, the KPI that I'm given? And then if I optimize on that, would I sacrifice some of my moral values to reach the goal? And I would say that I'm not perfect, right? So I, I have times where I think about I must achieve those objectives so that I'll be getting that bonus. But then now that I've gone through what I've gone through in the past few years, I, I think that it's so much more important to put people before profits or like put your values before profits because at the end of the day or even on your own on your deathbed you can tell yourself that you can answer to yourself you know what you have done yeah so so I think really putting that perspective it is quite important that's a tough one right because every VC <laughs> is like throwing millions of dollars to achieve a certain <laughs> yeah they chose to achieve a certain net IRR internal rate of return for the limited partners you also know them because <laughs> you've met them before as well yeah. so everyone's trying to hit a certain level of targets and then the founders all signed on without fully understanding 25% net IRR means in terms of the actual growth rate because they need to not only grow for themselves, but to grow for the other 90% of the portfolio that's not going to make it. Yeah. So they're going to work even harder than that, right? Yeah. But mindsets are changing. For example, I was just speaking to someone from, there's a tool where you can analyze um, the VC, a uh, pre-queen. So they actually have a filter for companies, VC firms that are ESG, that have the ESG mindset and focus. Yeah. I wouldn't say ESG would simply means, you know, values before profit or people before profit, right? But what I'm saying is that the world is changing. The world is moving towards more of thinking about besides measuring outcomes based on money, how else can we measure the outcome of, of what we are doing? And also investors mindset, are, investors meaning the limited partners, right? Investors that invest into these funds, their mindset are also changing. The, the objectives are changing as well. You know, I do feel hopeful. <laughs> we are thinking about more of... Um, Objective other than profits, other than the IRR. But it's tough because it feels like as the VC level is like, if I care about it, but 
lots of other people don't care about it. The other people who don't care about it will get to do better performance and report better net IRR, which allows them to raise more funds from LPs uh, who fundamentally, I feel like they care only about the net returns at the end of the day. Yeah. So what advice do you have for that conversation? If we all agreed that we will surrender 5% of net IRR to improve the world, I think we can all agree to that as a collective action. Yeah. But there's a little bit of a prisoner's dilemma, which is why should I focus on ESG when other people are not? So what's your point of view on that? Uh, yeah, it's such a difficult question to answer. But I would say that sometimes that data, being able to analyze the data of your past portfolio, you may uncover interesting trends. Because we always think that maybe a very fast-growing company or in a, in a solving a problem where uh, you know, it serves the biggest group of people who are willing to pay and able to pay, that will mean a golden egg opportunity, right? But then, but then what if there's a business that you can invest into that do good? And yet, maybe in three years, it won't give you the IRR that you want, but it's going to give you the profit that you, know, you want on a more sustainable basis. Just because it is a more constant, the business model is, is something that you need to build slowly over time. Yeah, so I think all I'm describing maybe is something like a social enterprise model or something like Yeah, so how would this actually help to diversify the risk of your portfolio? And so I think maybe this is really going back to the data and, and seeing are there assumptions made that could be challenged? Are there assumptions made that on get, getting to that profit that you promised your limited partners? Is there a way of, of um, changing that model so that you actually are able to deliver uh, somewhat and yet is uh, on a sustainable basis? Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm saying things in a really big term, but you know, to borrow an analogy, right? I think I'm quite inspired by like microfinancing kind of projects. I don't have numbers here, but what I know is that when you give micro loans to people, let's say, uh, really uh, have $3 to $6 a day to, to survive. What people realize over time is that they, let's say the loan, the percentage of loans that are paid back is super high compared to loaning it to some, some other groups of people. So hypothetically, you may be funding a company that seems to give you lower returns, but then the performance might be good consistently over time, right, compared to another startup that will grow really quickly in a short time, but later on, uh, the growth tapers. Yeah, so it's, just, so it's about thinking about the assumptions that you have made, challenging that, and also thinking about how can you diversify your portfolio so that you, you do deliver sustainable returns and not just short-term growth. How should founders think about that? Because you want to be mindful that investors are thinking about ESG outcomes slowly over time. And I think a lot of founders also care about it on a personal level and they see it that way. But they're worried that when they pitch, they don't want to come across as a tie-dye, yeah. Berkeley hippie, which I am, right? <laughs> you know? <laughs> but, you know, but also they want to focus on that. They want to show some of the East Coast, you know, Harvard capitalism into the deck and everything. So how would you recommend like founders think about articulating that, that sense of mission and purpose? tying in some ESG, tying in also like the return dynamic. How do you coach or help people through that? I don't think I can answer your question directly, but what I've been doing is um, giving a talk on the topic, finding funding for your startup. And um, what I share about is that finding VC funding for your startup is not the only way. There are grants, there are angel funding, there are family offices, bootstrapping as well, friends and family. 
all of this, they do have a, a different like investment horizon, expectations, right, uh, compared to the VC investors. So thinking about the different options and also thinking about like what kind of lifestyle, what kind of investors you want to have on your cap table. Because mm-hmm. if you raise from VC, given given the kind of expectations their own investors have, the kind of lifestyle you, you're going to have is really definitely going to be quite hectic because you need to achieve that numbers and growth matrix and all that. Yeah, but conversely, if you were to bootstrap, you were to apply for grants, could um, raise from family offices, who invest in your vertical, things may look quite different. And even philanthropies, yeah. So it, it really depends on what you want. And sometimes it's about the fit for the kind of uh, business you are running. And I would also say that there's no shame in uh, bootstrapping. You know, that there's, people would think that being funded by DC is, is such an honorable thing, right? It is something they can really shout about and all that. But the thing is, go back to the fundamentals, right? Go back to why you want to start a business. Why you want to start a business? Because you see that there's a gap and you want to solve that problem. You want to create a solution that is effective, that makes sense for your customers. So, so when you think, think of it that way, right, then I would say that why do you mind so much about the, the glory of being funded by a particular investor or by a VC, right? It's, it's more about thinking about how can you raise enough funding how do you grow your company sustainably so they can achieve the outcome you would like to see? And then being kind of uh, really prudent with the shareholding, the shares that you're giving away. So I think when you think about it that way, then maybe the decision that you make will be different. Yeah. I like how you as a bridge between VCs and startups are saying, hey, VC is not all that is cracked up to be, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think in every decision that you make, that there are pros and cons. So it's more... <laughs> so, so I'm not saying that it's wrong to take funding from VC. Uh, it is good, you know, it's great. Some, some of the VC, for example, Monks Hill, you know, it... You, you guys give so much support to the, to the popular companies. But I think more of the startup founders being able to make the right decision for themselves and for their company. I think it's important to also realize that bootstrapping is, is cool. It's still cool. Like, you know, there are so many companies like GitHub, like GoPro, that actually bootstrap and later on become acquired. Uh, yeah, so there's beauty in bootstrapping. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I too am a big believer in bootstrapping. I always tell people, it's like, my grandfather saved money from the plantation, working on the plantation to set up a provision shop. And it's called bootstrapping today. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, you know, that was the only way to build a business at that time, what British Malaya, right? You know, working on a rubber plantation is called, you know. <laughs> I think, so it's weird, it's upside down. Couldn't get money from a bank, let alone a venture capitalist, right? Yeah. And that's the way I think you have to build a business. And I think the crux of what you're saying is like, you know, the business is first, right? Mm. The fundraising or the funding is really the secondary piece of it. Yes. One interesting part is, obviously in your role, you see a bell curve of founders, right? Mm. You know, at that one point of time. Now, when I say bell curve, it doesn't mean they're average forever or they're great forever. But at the moment that they pitch, some founders have stronger pitches that in terms of their deck, some people have stronger businesses fundamentals and some people have very strong presentation skills, right? And of course, in the perfect world, yeah. all three of those things align. So like great business, great deck, great communication equals one of those blockbuster 
we see rounds that we see <laughs> over the can and tech in Asia and so so forth. And obviously for them, if you're listening to this podcast, like don't worry about it. You know you're gonna crush it anyway. <laughs> But for everybody else, it's a struggle to get there, right? Your business may not be fully there where you want it to be as you thought or planning a year ago. You know that you're not as strong a founder, speaker, seller as you could be for VCs because who has ever sold a company to a VC? In terms of pitching, it's like a totally new skill, and of course, it takes a lot of work to actually also build out the pitch deck and storyboard. So it's a lot of work. How do you advise founders to get there and improve themselves to be ready in front of other people and VCs? Yeah, I, I'm glad you brought that up. I think it's really difficult to be a founder to fundraise, you know, to to have everything that the VCs or the investor is looking for. There are many options, you know that. Obviously, there is accelerator program, so you know, enter entrepreneur first, and also other vertical focus uh, programs. I think a lot of them are super helpful in supporting founders getting there. Of course, it depends on um, what is the founder's kind of expectation, uh, what is the gap that founder the founders have, because um, often for programs like that, you know, it, it runs for at least three months, and uh, you start on a certain date and end on a certain date. So that has some kind of implication on like timeline of of the company, yeah. So and also it's often it's a it's a program for more than ten people, right? So it has to be quite sometimes generic. So you kind of have to like wait for a particular class to if you know you have a gap and you have to wait for that particular class in order to be able to start working on gap. So I think accelerator program all that is one way, and then second way is also maybe joining and a network. I heard of like C founders. I'm sure there are like um, other organization where there are mentors. You know, who can support you, um, how you address your gap. This this could be a good option. So for me, I actually have been thinking about this this as well. Like, how do we support founders? You know, is there something that we can create which is uh, not bound by time? People don't have to wait wait like three months to go into a program and, and then work on your and the gaps. Yeah, so so I'm thinking maybe of like a more of a digital venture builder kind of program where you know there are like relationship managers that would help you to look at your business right now, what are the gaps, and you, even yourself as a founder, address those gaps, and then bring in either advisors or mentors who can help coach you over time, so that you know get you to a stage where you are ready for the next funding round. So let's say for in if you the next stage is angel round. Then you know we will work on certain aspect that bring you to that stage that you are angel investor ready, and then after the angel stage, right, then help you with certain areas like, for example, hiring your CXO, so then you can and also helping you with validation, MVP building. Then you can get to the next stage of uh, seed fundraising, yeah, and so on until you kind of raise Series A and then you graduate from the system in a way. <laughs> and what I'm thinking about is also you know how can we provide. Part-time CXO. How can we provide non-core service providers at a bulk discount rate for these entrepreneurs so that they don't have to spend too much time uh, on the time wasters, meaning like trying to spend time to interview and find the right person, uh, which is the right fit for your culture, and also to really just just trying to assemble a list of investors that you should talk to, and then like kind of arranging meetings after meetings with them. Yeah. So so yeah. How can I help to Uh, really remove these time wasters, so that what founders are looking at is is saving them half year to one year, 
and then being able to uh, go to market more, much more quickly. I mean, this is my idea, but I haven't really got started with it. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. One thing that we've talked about in the past as well is that, you know, you not only have a heart, obviously, for founders who are kind of thinking about how to process and pitch themselves and prepare the business and build it out. You're also very thoughtful about making sure there's access for every founder as well. So minorities and especially women is something that you think about in terms of helping them get to the next level. Could you share with me, obviously, because it can feel like and I'm not saying that I believe agree with this, I'm just saying, you can feel like this is a problem that is an American problem because the news about minorities not being able to access funding, all of the research is on female founders not having access to funding in the States, that is discrimination, et cetera, et cetera. And if I was cynical, I could be like, we don't see any of that research in Asia. There's no proof that women are struggling to fundraise or to do that stuff. What would be your response about what the reality is for female founders in Southeast Asia? Sure, yeah. The fact that there is very little report, that the fact that there is um, little coverage about what's really happening on the ground doesn't mean that the problem didn't exist. Yeah, it just means that maybe on a demand and supply level of media, it is not... Or, or like in the report, uh, it's not worth doing it yet in Asia. Yeah, I'm a member of CBC, which is um, started by Sogal Ventures. You know, the founders include Pocket Sun. Yeah, so we often talk about you know the gaps for female founders in the US and also globally. There is actually really quite a bit of uh, a gap. And also yesterday, I was speaking to have just just chatting with Steve, who found co-founder Property Guru. He was, he's part of the enterprise organization. Then uh, they, were, they were discussing that the gender ratio in, in Singapore and Asia for our female founders is like 20%, 20 to 80%, right? uh, 20% of female and 80% male, right? And uh, when, you measure, when you compare that on, uh, I think, the US on a global level, uh, it's actually 30%. So actually, we are, still, we are below that global level. Despite the fact that we are a developed country, right? Despite the fact that we think women do have sufficient rights to, you know, the kind of education and employment that, that uh, we should have. There's a lot of undercurrents in, uh, when it comes to female entrepreneurship, uh, things that is not out there. Yeah. And, and I think why I feel that way is because I do see female founders struggling. I do see the lack of support and I do see like because of how the society thinks, the kind of deeply entrenched beliefs and mindset that we have, the bias, subconscious bias that we have that um, pose as um, obstacles that are that people don't see because it's just, um, it's not uh, something tangible. Yeah. Why I think that way is because um, at Entrepreneur First, you know, there are quite a few female founders. When I see some of the struggles they, they go through, like especially when they are fundraising, so there's one example I remember clearly was uh, she is fundraising and then one of the investors asked her, you know, if I invest in you, you know, what will happen when you get pregnant? What will happen when you have a child? You know, how can I be sure that the business is still going to uh, go on? Right? Um, how am I going to deliver that expectation to my investors and shareholders? Yeah. And then uh, also, you know, um, I think Shani and I, we discussed a little bit on... Uh, it's not female only, but it's more like some investors are quite particular about finding couples who will start their businesses together because they are worried that their relationship would be the risk right, for, for, for making sure the business carry on. Yeah. The life stage that women go through 
pose as an issue when you start a business. Or maybe it doesn't pose an issue, you know, if you have a great support system, but there is that uh, subconscious mindset and, and bias that investors can have towards females. I wouldn't say that it is the fault of the VC investor to think that way, right? Because they, after all, they are being responsible for the outcome that they, they bring to the investors. But I'm just thinking, you know, what else can uh, society provide? What kind of support can the government give? What kind of programs, initiatives, even grants, you know, that can be given to female founders? Or like even from the media partner's point of view, you know, what, what can they do to help profile female founders so that all together, you know, we, we can make things easier for female. We can uh, allow um, more females to become successful and that and then they can become role models for, for others to follow. Yeah, there's just so much that we can do, little ways that we can support and, and together these little ways become a wave or something of change, right, for, for female founders, yeah. And I think it's amazing because you are someone who, again, you know, walks the talk because you do actually spend that time, not just systematically coaching all founders, but also making sure to invest in helping other female and minority founders. And I've seen you do that as well as, you know, use some of those events and campaigns to donate to charities as well, the underserved in society. So you really do that. So I got to ask, I think a lot of males, myself included, in technology, we kind of want to be helpful and allies, but also, frankly, we feel like it's like in not our space. We don't want to come across as the guy helping women in a paternalistic <laughs> way, or worst case, come across as creepy, right? <laughs> Even worse, right? Yes. Yeah, you know I mean, so I mean, don't get me wrong. There are I'm going to flat out say that there are creepy people out there. Not trying to defend them, they should be blacklisted and blackballed from my perspective. But I think there's a good group of people who just be like, okay. We understand that systematically women are not being well served as founders and so so forth. And I'm supportive of women leaders to support them. And I should back off because I don't want to be seen as being very all up for no reason. So I don't know what advice you have for, I guess, the incumbents, the, the, the guys out there about how they should be thinking about how to help and be an ally to female founders? I think this is an interesting question. I would say that female founders don't require favoritism. We don't require special treatment because if we are capable, we, 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 the results will show. But I think maybe empathy is important because there will be times where you know, we can't be in office. We have family obligations. Yeah, but... I'm sure, you know, female founders who are responsible, they, they will still keep the business running, right? There's still someone who is a backup, who is there to hold, like, the stage while um, she's not around, yeah? So I think having the empathy and also the belief that the woman is responsible enough to keep the business running is, is important, will be helpful. And then secondly is, I think I love what Kukun Capital does. Um, so I know uh, Michael Blakey, well, because he, he, he invested in uh, EF companies in London and then now in Singapore as well. So what Cocoon uh, Capital organizes is a female founder-only mentoring session. I'm not sure if it happens every quarter or like every half a year. But I think, you know, really just, just coming up with um, programs, initiatives like that, that uh, is quite tailored to uh, female founders. Because after all, there are some differences between supporting female founders and male founders to some extent, uh, which I mentioned, like empathy being one. And also the way female founders would run organization could be a bit different. Yeah, just because 
because we have that family side, right? And then, and, and oftentimes I think um, that mother instinct towards employees, yeah. So the way we run businesses up will be quite different, yeah. So I think having this kind of like female tailored initiative can be really helpful, and also I think something that I would look into doing as well is is providing virtual discussion forums where female founders have the, that safe space to to share like the challenges they face. And, and I think just knowing that they are not alone is helpful already. And of course, if people, uh, you know, female founders within a session can support each other, can uh, either through sharing their own experiences, you know, how they overcome their experiences, what kind of solution they, they have made use of that has been helpful to solve their problems could be uh, really helpful, yeah. So in fact, um, this is uh, quite timely because um, I am organizing this female founder uh, closed door round table discussion during Makan for Hope Festival with uh, Tim Wu, who is co-founder of Zoom and now a board director at ACE. So we are going to invite females, uh, female founders from different stages of their startup as well as ecosystem partners and then you know, start talking about what are the issues that female founders face and what could be some of the potential solutions. And I think, you know, this, this initial conversation could spark off to, to more conversation, more, more people thinking about how to solve these issues. And then perhaps together, you know, we can create more uh, support for female founders. Thank you so much. You know, starting to turn to the last chapter here, you've been someone who has really done a lot for the Singapore and Southeast Asia ecosystem. Have there been tough times where you've had to choose to be brave? If you have uh, seen some of my interviews with my like, CNA 938 or my own blog, then you, you may know that my family background has been uh, relatively low income and I do have to make do right growing up. And then when it's time for me to uh, apply for universities, there was a time where I actually was quite fortunate to receive the provisional offer for the SEF scholarship. The SEF stands for Singapore Armed Forces. I actually went through six months of the, being in the BMT, which is basic military training, and then later on uh, three months in the officer cadet school. Um, I was also awarded the best physical training twice. I actually didn't follow on with the scholarship because um, ironically, the three months made me realize that I'm not a good fit as a military personnel. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's not me to think about attack strategies, <laughs> to think about um, how do I fire a gun at somebody. So um, I actually walked away from the scholarship. But what helps as well is that um, I didn't do well in my last interview because I was so tired after a seven-day uh, boot camp where I didn't sleep, I didn't have time to prepare for my interview. I wasn't awarded the, the uh, SAF Merit Scholarship. I was awarded the SAF Academic Overseas Scholarship instead. Yeah. So I decided to walk away, even though I know I would probably have troubles like trying to pay off my university school fees. Yeah. But I know that I can't go through the six years of a bond that I, I have to serve after that because my heart wouldn't be in it. And, and looking back, I'm, I'm quite glad that you know, the time I was 18 or 19 years old and I had that realization because like right now what I'm doing, right, I wouldn't have chosen a different path. Wow, that must have been so scary, right? Because, I mean, obviously I also did the military service as well. I was fortunate to have two female instructors who gave me a very different view on the army back then. But I can imagine as you coupled with the fact that you were gunning for that scholarship to help you cover your school fees with 
conjunction of your family situation. It must have been tough. How did you feel? Like you must have been so scary to just, I don't know, sending that rejection slash withdrawal email or letter, right? I don't know how you did it. <laughs> Can you tell us what it was like, you know, walking away? Um, yeah, I need to also build on what you say just now that it's not just about the security of paying for my university fees. It's also that I know if I say yes, probably I have career life that is charted out for me, right? So why do I want to choose a more difficult and uncertain path? I think at, at the time, I don't know, I think maybe it was more of a really serious discussion with my father. And then I told him that I really don't see myself having a military career. And he was supportive of you know, what I was thinking at, at the time. Obviously, he do hope that I uh, take on the scholarship because that will lessen the burden for, for our family because I have another sister. She's four years younger. And then um, she also wants to have a university education, right? I think it was really putting the perspective of what I want to do with my life that helped me to find the courage to make that decision. Of course, it takes some time, right? It took some time to come to that decision finally. But I'm really glad that I made the decision. Yeah, I'm not saying that having a military career is not good for female and all that. I think it is because I see so many of my friends who do have fulfilling military career. But then I realized that it's, it's just not for me. And then I couldn't be happier being where I am. What a tough decision to make, right? That would be a tough one, for sure. Yeah, I can imagine that being a tough decision. And again, I love the fact that you very much rhymes with what advice you give to founders as well, right? About being in the place that you love and loving yourself to enough and valuing yourself enough to do something that you want to do. In this case, for your case, not doing something that society and the army wanted for you as well. So, wow, that's rough. Well, starting to wrap things up here, Elise, you know, thank you so much. I want to kind of summarize the three big themes that I saw surface from this. I think the first, of course, was just thank you so much for sharing about your experience as someone who is thoughtful about being exposed to technology and being a role, being a bridge, and what you love about being a bridge and communicator at your heart for both startups and VCs and helping translate that. And I thought that was a very nice dynamic where you got to talk about your trajectory, but also the things you learned. And that brings us to the second theme, which is, you know, I love the advice that you gave to both founders and VCs. Uh, of course, about for founders, very counterintuitive because normally most people advise, you know, the VCs give us like, find product market fit, make more money, become profitable. And you're just very much like, whoa, hey, you know, you encouraging a founder to do what they love and to find that icky guy, right? It's just amazing advice about how to be thoughtful about the role, how to change your role for yourself and for the company. And I thought it was just really good advice. In parallel also, you know, I love the advice that you gave to VCs about being thoughtful about, you know, people and profit and about, you know, the upside of, you can call it ESG, but also being thoughtful about the impact of society. And of course, lastly, I really appreciate you talking about the last chunk, which is about you being thoughtful about your own personal journey over time about respecting yourself. And I think there's a big theme where I see and hear about how you struggled in the past and how you overcame that struggle. And I love the fact that you're helping other people go through that same process and learning that you did in the past. 
in the context of just founders, but also female founders who are looking to get past the barriers that bar them from access to capital and the next stage of the business. So Elise, thank you so much for being someone who not just talks the walk, but also walks the talk and has proven it multiple times, honestly. So I really respect you about that. Yeah. Thank you, Elise. Thank you, Jeremy, for the interview. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyow.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave. Thank you.